morning and welcome to all of you today beautiful day we have let's go over a couple of announcements uh, we talked about our new TV last week old news new news there will be no evening service tonight due to the lack of teachers Can you imagine the news on TV coming out? There will be no school tomorrow because of lack of teachers. Could be a double-edged sword. I mean, some of the teachers we have, but we need to learn every day. Work party uh, yesterday was canceled. A new date for it will be determined at a later time. I have a, there's something that's not in the bulletin I didn't get a chance to ask. Are we going to do uh, voting today for officers? That's going to be probably another. Would it be this one, this Wednesday coming, or do we have time to? Okay, why don't we just schedule for the following Wednesday, a week? We can that or tentatively okay. give us a little more. And and we'll we'll do that on the prayer chain. We'll okay. put that on the prayer chain. Okay. Our sister Andrea is not here today because she has lost her voice. Oh, there you are. I got some d dirt on my glasses. But Hannah is going to be uh, picking up the mantle, and she always does a wonderful job. Uh, my cousin passed away yesterday morning, 88 years old. Uh, I talked briefly about him to you, uh, that he was a, a genuine Christian. And we will be having funeral service for him. Uh, we think Tuesday of this week coming and I would ask your prayers for me as I am been tasked with giving the eulogy to him it'll be a small gravesite service so please keep me in mind uh, on Tuesday as I uh, bring the word one thing that uh, always impressed me about him in all the years that I've known him was his consistent conduct in his life. No matter how angry he got about some thing or person, I never heard him use foul language. Not a curse word, ever. And this guy spent four years in the Navy. Now maybe because I spent the extra fifth year in the Navy, it damaged me a little more. But... Uh, his Christianity was a genuine Christianity, and he lived it and he practiced it every day of his life that I saw him. Uh, took care of his wife. Took care of uh, people in his community. Started a boys uh, club. Uh, they called them the, the Rangers, where they were like the Boy Scouts, but he took them out into the, the woods, the wilderness areas in, in uh, Pennsylvania taught them the basics of living, 
brought godly men with him to teach uh, life skills and biblical principles to these young men. And because of it, uh, 30 years he was involved with that, raised up good godly men. He used to be commended for that. And I know God has welcomed him in, saying, Welcome home, thy good and faithful servant. It's something that uh, we could all do better in our own personal lives you know, to emulate that. Anyways, do we have any uh, prayer requests from the, from the group? Comments? Questions? Andrea? Oh, okay. They're they're going to be en route back home from winter winter blast. Well, it's a different winter camp. They're going with their youth group from Hunters Creek, the Hunters Creek Church. Okay. And, um, just, but it's end of the weekend, so first you need extra prayer. Okay. Let's uh, make sure we keep that in our hearts as we pray today. Anyone else? That being the case, uh, scripture medication, medication. It is kind of a medication, isn't it? The scripture for meditation is taken from the book of Genesis, verses 45 through 52, and that'll be page 68 in your few Bibles.
Just stand with us as we begin our morning with opening prayer. Elder Doug Luke, Doug Clayton, I mean. Well, I'm having a hard time today. Would you kindly lead us with the opening of prayer and maybe include me in that as well? Thank you. remain standing. Good morning. We all turn with me to 524 in the red. Oh, my God. 
Does anyone have a favorite hymn this morning? Elizabeth? It is well with my soul. One more time. 493 in the brown. And Elizabeth, do you have a reason? Okay, thank you.
And our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. That'll be page 1625 in your pew Bible. When you come to that, please stand with us. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this, this I hear about you? Give an account of all your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that... When I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? Eight hundred gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down, and quickly make it four hundred. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it eight hundred. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends, friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both money. You cannot serve both God and money. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. you all will turn with me again to the red, 
Our scripture text this morning is Luke chapter 16. Luke 16. In our last study of the gospel that Jesus preached, we finished up the parable of the lost son by looking at the lessons of the older brother who was very upset that his father had thrown a party for the younger son who had squandered his share of the family estate in riotous living. So he refused to enter into the festivities of his father's celebration for his brother, and it evidenced three things about this guy. Number one, self-pity. He says, you never threw a party for me. That's what he says to his father. Secondly, he had self-righteousness. I'm the one who has been the good son. I've always obeyed you. And number three, he had contempt for his brother. This son of yours. That's the way he says it. This son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes. So there's no joy at the repentance of the younger son. The father's response was, since the older son would not come into the party, the father went out to him. And it's emblematic of the fact that God seeks the self-righteous as well as the profligates. Secondly, he pleaded with his older son, encouraging him, to come out of his sin of self-righteousness and to see that not celebrating his brother's repentance, that was a great sin. And thirdly, he reminds the older son that the young man in the house is not simply another son of the father, but is actually his own blood brother. We drew out a number of lessons from this study. Younger brother <clears throat> represents people who are sinners and know it. They acknowledge it. The older brother represents men who are sinners and will not acknowledge it. And within context, he is referring to the Pharisees. The latter group had trouble with a gracious and merciful God. God forgives freely and fully with no strings attached, and the Pharisees didn't like that. And secondly, the self-righteous need the Savior too. They are Pharisees, and they have their hang-ups. They love the law, they love works righteousness, but they needed to discover grace. Grace. And we close by saying that there were a number of Pharisees found in the scripture that God saved. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, Saul of Tarsus, who became the great Apostle Paul. All Pharisees at one time. That brings us today to the parable of the shrewd manager. 
And it is a parable that is full of difficulty. And I say that because it is not an easy passage to unlock its meaning. And the reason for this is due to the fact that Jesus deals with some things which we have come to despise in people and which he seems to admire. Hmm. The other problem is that in re reading this, we tend to draw the wrong conclusions because of wanting to find a Christian application to every detail in the parable. But brethren, you cannot do that with parables. Usually the parables convey one main lesson. That's it. Other details, yes, they're thrown in to embellish the story, to make it understandable, to make it believable, but which have no bearing on what God is commending for the Christian's lives. Now to sort through this maze, one has to keep in perspective what Jesus, what the Bible, taught elsewhere. We then look for harmony, since one of the characteristics of God is that he is not self-contradictory. He doesn't say one thing in one place and the direct opposite in another place. So I've endeavored to keep these principles in mind when working on this passage for this morning. So that brings us to the story of the shrewd manager. We find from the storyline a rich man who owned a large estate had in his employ a manager who superintended the daily operations of the farm. This is not an uncommon practice at all. You would be surprised at the businesses in Lapeer, which are owned by wealthy businessmen who seldom darken the door of the establishments they own. They hire managers who order the raw materials, who hire the productive people, who use the accounts of customers and keep them intact, who direct the sales force, record the profits, repair the machinery if there is machinery, produce the goods, and market those things. The owners are attuned to the business in terms of direction, which they give their managers, the setting of goals, and of course, the making of a profit. And what the owners are looking for is managers who will be responsible in their duties and honest in their handling of company funds. They want people who will keep things running smoothly, who will deal with the problems which arise, and who themselves are not problem makers. For this loyalty and integrity, managers of companies, the COs, are generally compensated handsomely. They carry a great deal of responsibility, and so they are paid accordingly. This is the kind of position the manager of our story had. He was not a tenant farmer, and we've looked at those 
verse 5, verse 7, they were indebted and tried to pay off their debt by managing. Their debts consisted of crop shares, as we saw in the parable of the tenants, Matthew 21. He was not a foreman in the field, that is, a straw boss, whose authority is limited to the supervision of one specific aspect of the farm operation. No, this man was the principal agent in charge of the entire operation of the farming enterprise. But he was not the kind of manager who was faithful and astute in his work. Word came to the owner accusing the manager of wasting his possessions, verse 1. This does not mean embezzlement. He is not being charged with theft. He is being charged with mismanagement. He was paying more than the going price on the market for fertilizer, for example. He was always buying new equipment instead of repairing what he had. The maintenance program was poor. Workers were taking a one-hour lunch break instead of 30 minutes. Unused bags of seed were left in the fields, exposed to rain and to pillage. Wherever one looked, the shoddy way in which this manager administered the estate was apparent. There are people like that, you know. They reason, uh... <laughs> Ah, that tractor doesn't belong to me. If it wears out soon because the oil isn't changed on a regular basis, it's no money out of my pocket. Let the company buy a new one. That's the way they think. In other words, because the property or the equipment or the business isn't theirs, because they have no financial liability in it if it fails, they're careless in how they use things that belong to the owner. They cannot seem to see the big picture that their job and the future jobs of all who work for them are dependent upon the company's continued success. The manager of Jesus' story was such a guy. And so the owner called him in and gave him notice. Verse 2. Instructed him to get his books in order before he was replaced. Now, had he had been guilty of embezzlement, <laughs> you can be sure the owner would not have given him additional opportunity to get his hands on the company books. That'd be the last thing he got to handle. Again, his problem is not thievery. It is mismanagement. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master has taken away my job. So he's doing a little personal assessment here. I think if he had done this personal 
inventory sooner, it might have revealed the gross inadequacies of his administration, and he would have had time to make the needed corrections. But it's too late for change now. No, he's on his way out, and he knows it. So what's he going to do? How's he going to live? He knows he's not the kind of person who can do hard physical labor. He says, I'm not strong enough to dig. In other words, he's always lived by his brains, not his brawn. Do you know that this is okay with God? Not all men are equipped with physical stamina or good strength. Industry needs both white-collar and blue-collar workers to get the job done. The auto show that is held in Detroit every year. Automobiles are not simply the product of bolting parts together as a frame rolls down an assembly line. Where did those parts come from? And how is it that they fit together? Well, engineers in white shirts sat at computers and designed the parts. Tool makers made up prototypes to test the concept. Modelers worked with wood and clay to see if the finished lines would be aesthetically pleasing as well as functional. And marketers did surveys to see if the public would like such a design and buy the finished car. A lot of different styles of work. So it's okay with God that you don't dig ditches. It's fine that you work with computers or sell and retail or work in the PR department. This manager knew himself. He knew his limitations. I'm not strong enough to dig. That's just out of my realm. He also knew that he could not do certain things emotionally or mentally. He says, I'm ashamed to beg. I'm ashamed to beg. Now, this is not a put down on people who have extraordinary needs at times, which are beyond their means and who therefore need help financially. This man is addressing what he is going to do as his livelihood for his main source of income. And he is saying, what can I do in life? And then he rules out the impossible. I don't have the strength to do hard manual labor. And he rules out what for him would be demoralizing and humiliating. I can't stand on the street corner with a cup in my hand begging people to support me. 
I just can't do that. He's not physically or mentally impaired so as to need alms. He can't bring himself to assume that role. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. The welfare roles of our country are often overburdened by people who have lost their pride or have decided that a free lunch tastes better than one which they have earned through their own labors. They've lost their self-respect and they have made a temporary mode of assistance their permanent lifestyle. I remember the debate in Washington concerning the reform welfare people and our government was actually paying them to stay home. I don't know if that's still going on, but that's what was going on. The manager in our story couldn't do this. He could not bring himself to become a beggar on the street. Okay, well, what's he going to do? Looks like he's between a rock and a hard place. While he was musing over these alternatives, he had a brilliant idea. I know what I'll do, verse 4, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Okay, what was this brilliant idea? Verse 5 and following. He called in each one of his master's debtors, the farmers who were sharecroppers of the estate. And when he discovered the amount of the debt which was owed, he made a deal. The deal was this. Whatever was owed was drastically reduced there and then on the spot and all they had to do was make out a new bill and sign it, which then the manager himself would approve with his signature. And it is this new bill which would then become the record of the debt that was owed. Well, what did this accomplish? Well, the manager used his position and his know-how as the estate manager to endear himself in the hearts of his master's debtors. When push came to shove in the future, he could count on being well-received in the houses of these tenant farmers because, in a sense, they were indebted to him for the reduction of their debt. <laughs> Who would refuse him food? and lodging when they had had their debt cut, some in some senses, in half. Verse 6. And assuming that this estate was large and productive and had many sharecroppers working the land, this manager had set up a network of instantaneous friends who would support him for many, many years. No money was exchanged. No money. It was all done on paper. And guess what? 
This manager was finally using his managerial skills to his best ability. True, he was using them for his own advantage, but he was working fully within his job description, handling the master's accounts as he saw fit, only this time for his own security. There are people who use their positions to their own advantage. It isn't always ethical, but it was legal. So when the owner found out what happened, Jesus said that he commended, listen to this phraseology, he commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. So, Say what you will about this man's dishonesty, he kept his wits about him in the hour of crisis. He made an assessment of what he could and could not do to sustain himself in life, and in the end, he did what he knew. He used his managerial position to secure a sound future for himself and for his family. Now, that's basically the account of the shrewd manager. What's the point, however, of all this? Well, let me suggest to you what Jesus is not saying by this account. He is not saying that it is okay with God for Christian people to cheat their employers out of the money which is owed to them by their debtors. He is not saying that we are to use our positions in life to be dishonest. He is not saying that it is wise to buy friends by making them indebted to you. He is not saying that we are to be underhanded, conniving people who should try to get away with as much as possible. He is not saying that when we are caught in one sin, we try to get out of it by committing another sin, which is simply a little more sneaky. Jesus is not saying any of these things or any of the other ridiculous notions that people have tried to extrapolate from this story. When I was reading commentaries, I could not believe it. The stupid things these commentators were saying about this account. To conclude such things to be, is to be as dishonest with the scriptures as this manager was with his master's money. Now what Jesus is saying is this. God approves of being shrewd or wise in the administration of your stewardship. The word shrewd is a Greek word which simply means wise or intelligent in the sense of being prudent. That is, mentally astute and on top of things. For example, Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 16, 
to his disciples, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Well, the manager of our story wasn't innocent in his business dealings with the tenants, but he had half of the principle right. He was shrewd as a snake. And at that point, Jesus makes with him this story in verse 8. The people of the world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Hmm. Which ought not to be, by the way. We are not to be lagging behind the people of the world in prudence and in being astute. We ought to be as on top of the things in our sphere of stewardship as the world is in their realm of stewardship. Which brings me to the lessons of this account. What do we learn here? What do we learn? Number one, God is not reluctant to praise the people of the world, sinners, where they do well and to commend them for what they do in life which is right. I want you to think about that. Actually praising or commending people of the world, sinners, unsaved people of the world, for what they do that's right. Does that surprise you? This does me. I have heard Christian people speak of the people of the world as though they were nothing more than the scum of the earth. As though they could do no right and were worthy for nothing but extermination in the day of judgment. So here we learn from Jesus that God judges righteously. A charge, by the way, which our Lord himself enjoined to all of his disciples when he said, Stop judging by mere appearance and make a right judgment. John 7, verse 24. Oh, so we're charged with making a right judgment. The rich landowner in our story certainly had enough evidence on his manager's clandestine activities that he could have taken him to task for any number of wicked things, which he did. I mean, going behind the master's back to work a deal for his own embetterment, making a deal that reduced his master's income by up to 50%, using his position as manager for which he was being paid by the master to undercut the master's profits. There's a lot of sin here. That the manager was embroiled in. But instead, instead, the owner concentrated on the one virtuous quality 
with which the manager had conducted himself, his shrewdness. His shrewdness. Can you do the same? Will your mentality towards the lost allow you to commend them where they do well? To praise them for whatever virtues or talents they may possess through the common grace operations of God, or they wouldn't have those talents. I know a Christian person who illustrates what we are not to do. This person cannot speak peaceably about anything that the people of the world do. For example, I was speaking one time of the fact that I like some of the recent music that Linda Ronstadt was doing by reviving the old ballad love songs of the past using the Nelson Riddle Orchestra, one of the finest in the country, as her background people for the music. (laughs) This person became indignant. I wouldn't listen to her music if you paid me. Why, she ran off with Jerry Brown, the governor of California, to some Caribbean island when he was running for the presidency. The two of them spent the week together and then they expect the people of the country to vote Brown into office. Ha! He'd be the last person I would vote for. In another conversation one time, I just just mentioned as a side comment that for a man of small stature, Sammy Davis Jr., when he was alive, had a very powerful voice. That's all I said. Whoa, I got another tirade. I wouldn't support anything that man did. Why did you know that he married a white woman and they had children together? And then he struts around on the stage when he performs as though he were somebody important. Is this the way we Christians are to react to people of the world? What does liking a Linda Ronstadt rendition of some old ballad have to do with the fact that she spent maybe an immoral week with the bachelor in the Caribbean? I'm not commending her immorality but her singing ability. And whatever you might think of interracial marriages, what has that got to do with whether or not Sammy Davis Jr. had a powerful voice when he sang? You see, we must learn to make righteous judgments about people. Think of this. Any talent they have. Any talent they have received from the Creator. And that Creator is the same God whom we serve. 
We can distinguish between a person's sinful lifestyle and the good things which he or she does. And we, in commending a person for some ability or work which he has done well, is not at the same time condoning his or her sin. Let me ask you some things. Do you know for sure, for sure, that the manager of Meyer's store in Lapeer or the manager of the IGA, do you know for sure that those people are moral, upright citizens in the community? Maybe you do. Maybe you know them personally and you could answer yes or no or whatever. Do you know for sure that they don't fly regularly to Las Vegas and gamble their family's income away in the gaming tables? Are you positive that they are faithful to their spouse, loyal to their children, honest in their business dealings? And if you did know some deep, dark secret, would you think that you were condoning their lifestyle because you bought groceries at their store or because you complimented the manager at Myers that his store has always have a sparkling clean appearance when you shop there. To see only bad and never good in people is not even something God or the God of heaven does. God is not reluctant to praise the people of the world where they do well and to commend them for what they do in life which is right. Read Romans chapter 2, what Paul says about the pagan. They have the law of God where? Written in their hearts so that they know right from wrong. And in knowing right from wrong, they oscillate, that's true, but sometimes they do right, sometimes they do wrong, and that's the way they live their life. Secondly, let us learn to mimic the shrewdness of the world in managing the things around us to prepare for the future. When Jesus said that the people of the world are more shrewd than the children of the light in dealing with their own kind, verse 8, he went on to say, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Wow. This is really getting deep. The people of the world, like the manager in our story, they know how to turn a dollar so that in the end they have secured for themselves a sound financial future in their world. But we're not as shrewd in managing our material holdings in such a way that we lay up treasures in heaven, which is, as Christians, is our future world. So as people of the light, verse 8, are we not to be as enlightened as the world in how 
we turn our dollar into an advantage. Oh, not in the same way the manager of this story did, thinking only of himself and his own happiness, but as Jesus says, to use our resources in such a way as to gain friends for eternity. Are they not those who share our faith in God and like the same Christ as Savior as we do? Then a right use of our money will be to use it to minister to the poor and the ignorant, even those indebted up to their eyeballs with the weight of personal sin. If shrewdness is a part of our stewardship skills, then we will use our money where it will count for eternity. Even if it means that in this life we may have to go without some of the finer things the world has to offer. You are never a loser, brethren, to contribute to the work of God, to support the gospel outreach through the ministry of your church and the ministry of missionaries. You're not stupid to put your money into ministering to the poor and the underprivileged because not many that are called by God, are noble, not many mighty, I'm reading scripture, but God has chosen what? The lowly things of the world and the despise to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 28. Strong lessons from this account. A third lesson here is this. If you plan to manage well the things of eternity which God has in store for you, learn to faithfully manage the little things on loan to you now from God. It's quite an educational school that we are involved in. I refer you to verses 10 and following. Whoever can be trusted with very little, this is Jesus speaking, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Wow. And then he says in verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I hear people all the time asserting what they're going to do for God when they get older. Oh, this is a good one. Or, or when they get all their bills paid off. 
or as soon as they're out of school. They got their degree from the university. Or when their children are old enough to take care of themselves. Jesus' proverb is true. While they are serve money, they aren't serving God because they cannot serve two masters with the same tenacity and devotion. You may not think that you are serving money, but you are when everything which could be done for God is weighed by how it is going to affect your standing in the present world. This is often very subtle. That extra overtime which takes you away from your God-given duties as a father, that promotion at work which takes you into a realm of higher stakes and compromised principles, that love for new things which keeps you enslaved to the credit card companies, that appetite for fun, for excitement, which takes you to your old haunts in the world, place no person should be found who loves and serves God. All those things, Jesus' point is that it is a fatal error to think that management skills used for the good of God will be yours automatically when you get to glory. Because you're not managing well down here. And that's Jesus' point. If you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches? Verse 11. And what is the worldly wealth by comparison? Verse 10. It's very little. When God looks for people to whom he can trust and trust his kingdom, he looks for those who are shrewd managers of the little things. It may not seem like such a big deal to show up to church service every time the church doors are open or to contribute financially to the work of God on a regular basis. It may seem inconsequential to you to discipline your children every time they are disobedient to you without fail. Or to pray without losing hope. Or of witnessing the gospel when people turn a deaf ear to you. But the people who will inherit the kingdom of God and rule and reign with the Lord of glory are the people who have been faithful managers of the little things they have received on loan from God in this life. So what I am saying in conclusion is this. This life is your proving ground. This world is your training school. Manage it well. Manage it shrewdly. Your future depends on it. God isn't asking you to contribute $10 million to the church, but he's asking you to manage well the $10,000 that you make in your salary a year. 
the day of small things is not to be despised. Are we wise stewards of God's goodness to us? This is the gospel Jesus preached. The shrewd managers are the ones who will inherit the kingdom of God, having been faithful in a little, the scripture says, God will give them rule over much. And that should be our goal. Because we rule for Christ. Not our own glory. But for his glory. That his grace, his salvation, his forgiveness, his Holy Spirit has made us the people that we are. And granted us the skills that we have used for the advancement of his kingdom. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you and praise you for what you have done for us in Christ. We thank you for this very account from your own lips about the faithful manager. We want to be as faithful too. Where do we get our marching orders? It's from the scriptures. That's why we're here on this Sunday morning. We're learning about these principles. We're learning what our goals should be, what our priorities should be. We're learning what to avoid, what to take hold of, what to advance. And we thank you for it. It isn't like you have left us in the dark as to how or what we are to be doing as the stewards of your kingdom. Let us walk in your footsteps and give you the glory. In Christ's name, amen. Now our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal. And it's 589. Five, eight, nine. That doesn't look right. Uh, let me look in Trinity a minute. That's not it either. What, Gary? I wish I did. Okay. I wish I had written it down. We know 588. How about 586 in Trinity? Yeah. 586 in Trinity.
one page back. They do that in Trinity sometimes. You, you get a song written two ways, and they put both songs in there so you get. But anyway, 585, okay. song than I had. It really agrees well with the message. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word, the truth of the songs that we just sang, and we pray, Lord, that you will help us to be managers of your estate as wise stewards, wise stewards, using our brains and our emotions and all that we are to advance the kingdom of God using our strength and abilities to preach the gospel yes but also to live it before a watching world help us to be such a mystery that people will want to know what is it about your life that makes you the person you are how can you be so forgiving when people hurt you all the time or say cruel and mean things, how do you handle your money like you do? Oh, Lord, may we be a mystery with the truths of the gospel so that people will seek out to know 
that Holy Spirit power that has changed our lives. Thank you for each one here that knows Jesus. May those who do not know you come to know you in saving faith. Grant them that faith and that repentance for your glory and their good. We pray. Amen. We are dismissed and we are done for the day. Yeah. There is one more item we need to address. Okay. There is a master Ethan Maurer amongst us today and he suffers a birthday. <laughs> and I feel it incumbent upon us as a congregation to render proper recognition and salutation. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.